open up our minds, eyes, hearts, ears. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the scripture now, I pray that you would do just that, that you would open up our hearts and minds. You have graciously, kindly, sovereignly condescended to reveal yourself to us. You had no obligation to do that for your God. But yet you've chosen to reveal yourself to us throughout history and your covenants uh, through your word that has been written by those you uh, inspired and worked through to do so, and most especially in your Son, our Lord Jesus. But Father, we admit our resistance to seeing you, to hearing from you. And so we pray that you would overcome that resistance as you've done in us by the Holy Spirit, even as you called us to yourself. So, Father, I pray that your Spirit would be powerful to us this morning to enable us uh, to see Jesus in this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to open to Hebrews and chapter Eight, Hebrews chapter 8, I want to read beginning with verse 6 through the end of that chapter. Hebrews and chapter 8, please. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Hear the word of God. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is that is as much more excellent than the old uh, covenants he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenants, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I want this morning to draw your attention to verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Since I've been gone a couple of weeks, let me just quickly uh, catch us up. Um, we're in a section of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews is, is working through uh, giving to his readers and thus to us as well um, this full assurance of hope. That is, it's his desire that they live with the assurance that all the things that belong to salvation will be theirs. Uh, that is, forgiveness of sins. That is, being accepted by God. 
that is, uh, knowing that God is at work in you to transform you, to conform you to the image of His Son. Knowing that God, in His gracious sovereignty, is, is caring for you at every turn, and that nothing happens to you apart from His loving concern. And thus we give Him thanks for the good things, and even in the midst of the difficult things, we know that God is at work because we belong to Him. And of course, we know, therefore, that we have eternal life, uh, that we will live uh, under His blessing, that is eternal life, forever, in contrast to eternal death, which is living under His wrath forever. And so we know that we have eternal life. So the author of Hebrews is concerned that these people are able to live, that we're able to live with that kind of assurance to know that everything that belongs to salvation, everything that accompanies salvation is true for us. And since all of this is wrapped up in Jesus, he wants to make sure that we understand that by trusting in him, that all the things that belong to salvation, that all the things that accompany salvation will be true for us. Not everybody believes that. Not everyone believes that all of the blessings of God are wrapped up, uh, wrapped up in salvation. Uh, I, I read in last Sunday's newspaper, in the little weekend magazine, I guess you'd call it, there was an article, I, I confess, I read, uh, by, about Carlos Santana, who was a rock and roll person in the 70s and all people my age know who he is, but he's making a comeback at the ripe old age of 58. It's pretty amazing. Not that I'm going to buy any of his stuff now. I'm wiser, but but he said this. He was asked the question, uh, but what's the difference between spirituality and religion? What's the difference between spirituality and religion? And here's what he said. He says, spirituality is saying, may the heavens open up, and angels bless everyone with a deep awareness of his own light. Religion says only Jesus got the light, and then I won't repeat what he wrote there, but then he said, and you're in the dark. They're the only ones that got it, and you've got to go through them to get it. Man, in this life, the only thing that's holy is your relationship with your heart, your family, and the air you breathe. Now, I commend him for recommending our hearts, our family, and even the air that we breathe as being significant in the course of our lives. Uh, but you can see that his view is very different than, than the view of Christianity. And, and it reflects, however oddly it's phrased, but it reflects really um, the understanding to a great degree of our culture that everything that we need really is within us. Now it's interesting to me that though he wouldn't believe in Jesus, he would believe in angels, and that angels would live in the heavens, and that they can in some sense open up our hearts to such a degree that we be become in touch with that which is within us. And it's interesting that the author of Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is greater than the angels. And we sometimes wonder about what people think about angels, but I guess the author of Hebrews is still rather contemporary. But he believes that everything that we need is within us. And if only it, it, it's opened up to us, then we'll be fine. But you see, the view of Jesus is the problem is everything that's within us. And yes, we need to be opened up to it so that we can see it, so that we can realize that it's contrary to God and, and, and see our need of a radical change. 
not just simply an expression of what's there, but a radical change. And you see, this, I think, though I'm partial to 1970s rock and roll people, I must confess, this, I think, uh, does reflect a great deal of thinking in our culture. It really is all within us. We just need to get in touch with us, in touch with it, and, and sort of foster it and prosper it in such a way that, it, that, that we'll be fine. Um, that's contrary to this about Jesus. Now, it's sad to me always when I read people's reflections on Christianity that, uh, that it puts us in, in a sense of looking arrogant or bigoted or, or narrow-minded or any of that um, as, as this does in the sense that, that we've got it and you've got to go through us to get it. We didn't get it from us. We got it from him and we're simply sharing that information. But still, the author of Hebrews wants us to see that trusting in Jesus, not trusting in that which is within but trusting in Jesus really brings all that God promises, all the blessings of God, all the, 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 the promises that he's, that he's told us about everything that accompanies salvation. So that's where we're headed. So whatever it is that we're talking about, that's, that's the purpose, that's the goal in order to increase our faith, to increase this assurance of hope that by believing in Jesus, all these things really will accompany and all these things really are true. Now, as the author of Hebrews is laying that out and talking to us about Jesus, we come to a section where he thinks it's important that he makes a comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. And he thinks that's going to help us. And this new covenant was mentioned, was prophesied, was told to us by Old Testament prophets, most especially the prophet Jeremiah. And so he quotes Jeremiah in these verses, beginning in the middle of verse 8, through verse 12 uh, in Hebrews, as, as, uh, as I read them, as that which is about this new covenant. And he says, now, the old covenant, the covenant being this uh, agreement wherein God promises to be faithful to everything that he says, as long as uh, those to whom he says it are faithful to him. That's this covenant and this old covenant. And the one most particularly that he's speaking about is this covenant that he made with Moses at Mount Sinai that would govern the people. And uh, that covenant had a flaw. It wasn't in the promises of God. It wasn't in the faithfulness of God. But it was the problem existed in the faithfulness of the people. They continued to fail. And so they would never receive the blessings of the covenant. And if all we had was this old covenant, our assurance would not be that great. Because we'd look back and we'd realize that, that it, it seems like the pattern was that, that God gave this covenant and people would fail. And thus, as he says in verse, the middle of verse 9 in this passage in Hebrews 8, he says, For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Meaning that I didn't give them the blessings because they didn't. They weren't faithful. And I would look at that and say, Phew, then what hope have I? What, what assurance should I have? And so the author of Hebrews is saying, but look at the new covenant. The new covenant corrects the flaw of the faithlessness of the people because it's in Jesus. And Jesus is the faithful one. Jesus comes and he, he, he's faithful to the covenant. He, he obeys God at every turn. And he does that for us. As, as our representative. And so we can have assurance as we trust in him because he did it. 
He was the faithful one. His faithfulness is credited to us. And not only that, he says that in this new covenant is coming exactly what everybody needs. And everybody in the new covenant, everybody who trusts in Jesus, everybody that's in him will have this. And that is, he says, I will, I will write my, I will put my, my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. That is, there'll be a heart transformation for them. It's exactly what Ezekiel said. You remember when he talked about the new covenant coming. And God said, I'll take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in my ways. We go, Unlike our dear brother Santana, uh, who thinks that all we need is to have what's in be enlightened and come out. What we really do need is that which is within to be transformed, to be, to be taken out and, and, and replaced with the very Spirit of God and a heart that's inclined towards Him. And, and, and the author of Hebrews says of the new covenants that will come. And not only that, because of the faithfulness of Jesus and because of this new heart, then I can promise you, I can tell you, this will be true of you, that I will be your God and you will be my people. That as you can live your life with the understanding that you belong to me and that, that you will look to me to define you and to tell you what is important in life, which is exactly the one we should go to to ask that question, what's important in life? What's life really mean? Well, the creator of all that life, God himself. And he says, because you belong to me, because I'm your God, you look to me for that. And I'll direct your paths. And, and, and you will find that I'm delightful. <laughs> that as you follow after me, that you'll know this joy that's true for all those who belong to me. And so he says, I'll be your God and you will be my people. And then we come to this next promise of the new covenant in verse 11. And he said, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. He's saying, A blessing of this new covenant is that you will know me. And you get the sense that when God says you'll know me, he means more than just that you'll have information about me. He means more than, you'll be, than, than just you'll be able to pass a multiple choice test on God facts, right? But there's more to it than that. And you also get the sense that there's more to it than, than, than just what people mean when they say, uh, I believe in God which normally simply means I believe in the existence of a higher being, some sort of powerful entity out there. But, but you get the sense that when God says, you'll know me, it means, it means more than that. Think about uh, people that you know. Think about the times when you've seen a person and you've said, I'd like to get to know them. What is it that you mean? You, you don't normally mean I just want to gather a bunch of facts about them. You probably have enough facts about them already to, that, that, that attract you to that person. You say, I've seen enough. I've observed in such a way that, that now I want to go beyond just this observation of them. I want to communicate with them. I want to have a relationship with them. I, I want to, to, to know them uh, in, in the sense that I want to know how they think and, and, and I want to understand them and I want to, I want to share life with them in some sense. This morning as I asked you to pass the friendship registers and asked 
you know, think about who you know down your row or who sits around you and, and how you know them. I mean, we know people to varying degrees. I mean, some people you simply know by face. Some people you know by where they sit, you know. You can see them out there and you go, I know where they're going. I know them to that degree. I, I know where they sit. Um, you, you may know them uh, deeper than that because you've, you've shared some life with them. Maybe you served on a, on a mission project together. Maybe you're in a Sunday school class together where you've had some chance to interact. Maybe after a worship service, you've stopped and talked and you found some point of affinity, some point of interest between the two and made a connection there and said, well, if they like baseball, then I know them. <laughs> you know, that's something deep that we share. Um, <laughs> I, I know it makes you tick if you like baseball. Um, and if you don't, I know something about you too, but I don't want to think about that. But, um, but would you share an affinity so you, so you know something about each other? As you look down the road, you, you might see husband and wife or child or close friend. You know them more deeply. You know their voice. You know their touch. You know their laugh. Uh, you know their cry. You know how they respond in various situations because you know them that deeply because you've shared life with them at various points. And not just observed, but, but your thoughts have been affected by their thoughts. Their plans and decisions have affected your plans and, and decisions. Uh, their feelings have affected your feelings. I suppose there isn't any deeper uh, exchange before, between two people when it's honestly said, I know how you feel. There's some close affinity there to say I've experienced what you've experienced to such a degree that, that I think I, I know how you, how you feel. And, and the deeper we know someone, the more of life we've shared with them, you see. And the more we're affected by their lives. And the more our lives, if you will, if it's a mutual peer relationship, has affected Theirs. And, and their personalities have affected us. If they're kind people, then we've probably experienced their kindness, and so we know them to be kind. And when we speak of them, that's how we relate them, that they're kind. If they're generous people, we, we've probably experienced their generosity in the context of our lives. If they're wise people, we've probably been beneficiaries of their wisdom. If they're abusive and we know them, we've probably experienced their abuse. See, the more that we know them, the more we've shared life. And this amazing thought to take it from knowing another human being to then hear God say, you will all know me in this covenant. That's the promise here. There's something God is saying that we're going to share life. You're going to share in my life in some way. You're going to know all the aspects about me, not just to take a test about God facts, but there's a sense in which you know me deeply. I, I, I shudder even to go on, to even try to think about what that might mean for a human being to know, to know God. And so we ask the question, 
How do you get to know God? How does that happen? But I think it's true that to really get to know another person, that other person needs to reveal him or herself to you. In other words, we can gather facts by way of observation. But, but, but you can only observe so much. There has to come a time when that other person is willing to describe themselves and explain themselves to you, to actually talk to you. This is where most husbands get into tremendous trouble. I'm so glad my wife's not at least here in this service. Usually she comes to both, but I can... Because I know I'll get into trouble when I say that. In the second service, she'll tell me this afternoon that I need to talk more to her so I can, she can know me better. <laughs> But, but it's true. In fact, the more different you are, which may be a husband and wife thing too, the more different you are, the more necessary it is for this process of communication and revelation. Because if you're very different to another and you observe them, it's very difficult to know them because you don't have too many touchstones in, in which to, 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 to grab a hold of what they're doing and what you see in them. And, and can you only imagine uh, what it must be like to say, to hear God say, you'll know me. And I have to ask the question, how? Now, it isn't that he hasn't shown himself. I mean, I read Psalm 19 as our call to worship this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God. We should be able to look at the stars and the sun and the moon and the clouds and everything above us and, and get a great sense of the glory of God. Normally what we do is put on sunglasses because it's too bright and we don't want to see it. You know? Or we put up an umbrella because rain is coming down and we don't want to experience that. So we're trying to avoid the glory that is there. But yet how even do we imagine one who is so powerful just simply to be able to say, let there be light. And there is. Or to say, I think we need a moon, and there is. Or an earth, and there is. Or water, and there is. I mean, how do we even imagine such a one like that? He says, I've told you all about me. If you only look, you would, you would bow bef- before me. But it's so difficult. Just by, We have a natural barrier for the finite to understand the infinite, for the created to understand the creator. How does that take place? It's sort of like this, this uh, you know, a chair looking at the carpenter, going, looking at the maker of that furniture maker saying, oh, I know you. <laughs> how, how does a chair do that? Well, God has made us to know, but still yet. How do we know this one who's the creator? And not only that, but we realize there is a spiritual barrier for us knowing God as well. I mean, if God has created everything uh, so that we should know Him, still we don't, because there's this spiritual barrier that that keeps us from knowing Him. For instance, uh, in Romans, in chapter 1, we see it about as clearly, I suppose, as we can, in verse uh, 18. The apostle writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, that's the difficulty for us. We suppress the truth. We suppress that which God has has shown us. And so we need more than just facts. We need more than just information because if he just gives us information on the minds and hearts we have, we'll suppress that truth. We won't embrace it to know him. 
Um, you remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam walked, the scripture says, with God. God walked with him in the cool of the garden. I, I don't even know what that means, except that God walked with Adam in the cool of the garden. But can you imagine such a thing, how difficult it is to even, even think about that? But yet that was their relationship. Uh, and yet a day came when we find Adam hiding himself from God. The reason he hides himself from God is because now a separation has taken place and he doesn't want to see God. He, he, he doesn't want to live in the direct presence of God. He's, 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 he's sinned. He's turned against God. And what he's actually done is put himself in the place of God. And now when he thinks of seeing God, he can see no farther than his own nose. And he's saying, I'm God, this other one's a threat to me, so I'm going to go over here. And every time he comes close, I'm going to suppress the truth about him because I only want, I want to be God. I want to be the one who defines good and evil. I want to be the one who defines what my life is all about. I want to be the one who directs the path of my own life. I, I want to delight in myself, not in him. I, I want to glorify myself, not glorify him. I want to reflect who I am, not who he is. I want to reflect... If only the angels would come from heaven and open up my heart. I want to reflect what's within me, not him. You see? And so this separation arises. So then the more God communicates, the, the more we suppress, and the less, therefore, we know of him. And so it's more than just the need to have information about God. In this new covenant, something must happen in order for us to be able to know Him, to be able to embrace Him. And we know that, that God has communicated to us most completely in our Lord Jesus. Oh, He did it through the, the covenants. He, he revealed Himself to Abraham and said that I'll bless you and you'll have descendants and I'll bless the whole world through you. He came in the Mosaic Covenant and he said to, to Moses, here's the law, this will reflect my holiness. Uh, he also comes to, to Moses and gives him uh, the sacrifices and he said, this will, this will reflect my mercy and grace. And he gives them kings and he says, these kings should reflect my righteous rule in your life. And all of this to, to reveal, to communicate who God is. Do you remember all of it comes from that moment where Moses sees God at the burning bush. And God says, I want you to go and I want you to deliver my people out of Egypt. And Moses doesn't want to go, but finally he says, all right, if I go, who should I say has sent me? And God says, tell them, I am has sent you. So God gives him his name and his name describes who he is. It communicates who he is. He says, I simply am. I'm self-existent. I am. That is, I'm eternal. I had no beginning and no end. I simply am. At every moment in time, wherever you look in history, that's where I am. I'm there. And you can't go before me and you can't go after me because I simply am. I'm self-existent. I'm eternal. He says, listen, uh, I'm self-sufficient. I, I don't need anyone to sustain me. I simply am. I don't need anyone to feed me. 
I don't need anyone to help me. I simply am. I exist, and I shall always exist. I'm self-determining. I don't need anybody to lead me. I simply am. Uh, I will do as I please because I simply am. I'm the sovereign one overall. And, and later then, a time comes in the life of Moses when he says to God, show me who you are. You know, if I'm going to lead these people, show me who you are. You get a sense, I get a sense of God scratching his head. If he had a head, he'd scratch it and say, haven't I shown you enough? Because you see, by that point, he had already sent Moses into Egypt, already conquered all of the gods of Egypt through the various plagues, already brought judgment on the nation of Egypt through uh, Moses, already delivered all the people out in graciousness, not taking the lives of the firstborn son of the Israelites, but rather uh, taking a lamb instead, walked them through the Red Sea, which is pretty amazing. Uh, I think I'd learn a lot about God just from that. And, and then took them uh, right to this mountain. And then Moses says, but God, show me your glory, and turn to Exodus in chapter 33. And verse 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So he gives them this name, the Lord I am. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place uh, by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And I will take away uh, my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so in a sense, God gives him a glimpse even this point and says, I'm going to uh, 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 be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and mercy upon whom I will be merciful, saying I'm gracious and merciful, but I'm sovereign over all that. I'm the one who decides who gets mercy and I'm decide, the one who decides who, get grace, who gets grace. And then finally, when all this transpires in chapter 34 and verse 6, here's how it happened. It says, The Lord passed before him, him being Moses, and proclaimed... His name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so here, God reveals, God communicates who he is. He says, listen, I'm the Lord that is the sovereign one. I'm the eternal one. I'm the self-existent one. I'm the self-determining one. And I'm merciful and gracious. So if you're going to know me, you'd know this about me, that I'm merciful and gracious. If you're going to know me, you'd know that I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you're going to know me, you know that I keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. But if you know me, you'll also know that I can't acquit the guilty. I must be just. You're going to know me. All of those things are true about me. And of course, God didn't reveal bits and pieces of that. In the law, he says, I'm holy. In the sacrifices, he says, I'm merciful and gracious and patient and kind. But also just. Because if you're going to live in my presence and you sin, something must die. And my justice will be in taking the life. My mercy will be, I won't take yours. 
And of course we know he reveals himself, the Lord does most completely in our Lord Jesus. Because it's in him that we see the very presence of God. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. The scripture says that the word became flesh and tabernacle dwelt among us. In fact, this very word would be the one who would come and make the Father known. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But even in that, we need more than just information that Jesus brings. We need more than just the information about the Father that he brings. We need more than just the information about God that he brings. We need more than just the communication of the truth about who God is. Because there are many who saw Jesus and still didn't believe. In fact, there are many who saw Jesus even after he was resurrected and didn't believe. So it wasn't simply the information that he brought, but it's what he did. He made reconciliation between us and God. He made it so that God could communicate to us directly by taking away God's wrath. So when he died for our sins, he satisfied God's wrath so that God could make himself known personally to us. And then what Jesus did was that he ascended and sent the Holy Spirit. And in sending the Holy Spirit... He sent this very personal one to us who would teach us in our own hearts to know God. Now when the prophet Jeremiah, quoted by the author of Hebrews, says that we won't need anybody to teach us, he doesn't need mean that you should fire me. I just want to make that clear. Because even while the author of Hebrews is saying all this, of course, he's teaching them. So that isn't the point. But there is something else in addition to this human teacher that is necessary. Because you see, human teachers can give out information. Human teachers can give out right information and must. If we're to know God, we need to know the God facts. But it's more than that. But we need to know at least that somebody's going to tell us, we're going to learn about who God is cognitively. These words need to come to us. But something else needs to take place. Because if just this information is given, we'll suppress that truth. Something on the inside needs to happen. Because you see, our knowing of God isn't primarily an intellectual issue. It's a moral one. We simply don't want to know him. He's a threat to us. He'll get in the way of me being God. So the Holy Spirit comes, you see, to transform our hearts. To take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. To put his spirit within us. And Jesus said it like this to Nicodemus. John chapter 3, you remember this. Uh, John chapter 3 and verse 3. He says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, it isn't just a matter of information. It's a matter of being able to see. It's being able to have eyes to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus goes on like this in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit that is cleansed and has the spirit of God upon him, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, in order to see it, in order to perceive it, in order to enter it, in order to embrace it, the Spirit of God must work in us. The Apostle Paul puts it like, like this 
in uh, second i'm sorry first corinthians in chapter 1 in verse 18 he said for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it's the power of god so he's making a contrast between those who are perishing and those who are being saved and he says this cross the same bit of information the same historical events is perceived differently by two different people. To those who are being saved, we look at the cross and we say, now that's the power of God to save me. But those who are perishing look at the cross and say, that's nothing. So what's the difference between the two? Well, Paul goes on to explain in verse uh, 20. He says, where is the... One who is wise, where is the scribe, where is the, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign in Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That's one of these very, take off your shoes, tread lightly, ah, get goosebumps verses. He's saying there's some mystery here in the working of God. That he says, in general, Jews demand sign Greeks wisdom. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. He's including all kinds of people there. But he said then, to those who are being called. So this calling is something that opens eyes, that enables us to see that the cross is the power of God to save. And that's the promise of the new covenant, that all those who are in Christ receive the gift of the Spirit who opens their eyes calls them in such a way that mysteriously and uniquely to them, to you and me, to all those who believe, draw us to see that the cross is the power of God. He goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 12, he said, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. These are difficult words. I don't think Paul knows how else to say it. Because he's saying regular words. I mean, these aren't funny words. These aren't weird words. These aren't words that you know you have to look at in the Greek and go, well, that doesn't make any sense. They're words. But he said, no, these are spiritual words to the degree that they've been taught to us by the Holy Spirit. He's told us this truth, convinced us of it, and they fall upon those ears of those who've been called by the Spirit. So that gives you the wherewithal in order to believe and embrace this. And it's, again, a tread lightly, but rejoice over kind of passage. Then if you turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 4, he puts it like this. He says, in their case, that is unbelievers, of which we all were at one time, in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
Right? That's this truth suppression problem we have. Verse 5. For we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying, just like in Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light, and kaboom, there was. When he called you by his Spirit, when his Spirit worked within you, it was nothing short of God saying in your own heart and mind, let there be light. And there was. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John puts it like this in 1 John in chapter 2. Turn there because you won't believe it unless you see it. And even then you'll struggle. That's why I prayed for you this morning and for me that the Spirit of God would be really strong upon us and enable us to see this and to embrace it, not resist it. Again, because you could take a multiple choice test on this and pass it. That's not the point. The point is embracing it, believing it, trusting it. John chapter 2 and verse 20. John is talking about a group of people that have left their fellowship. And he's relating them to the spirit of Antichrist. So verse 20 he says, to give them some assurance, he says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have, and you all have knowledge. Now the Holy One in this passage is Jesus. It's a little play on word because the word anointed in Greek is very similar to the word Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one. So the Holy One anoints us. And he goes on to speak in the context of 1 John of the Holy Spirit who enables us to see. And he says, but you've been anointed by the Holy One. You have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. And then in verse 26 he writes, I write these things uh, to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him. John's saying, I have this confidence. And the confidence that you're going to continue to walk with, with God and not leave is because you belong to him. And if you belong to him, it means his spirit is within you. And if his spirit is within you, his spirit is resonating with the truth that you hear through these ears that comes from the word of God and strengthening you and, and, and enabling you to continue to abide in him. Because when Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, he said, he's going to come and glorify me. The Holy Spirit's going to come and, and show you who I am. And so when we're hearing about Jesus and believing in him, we know that that's a work of the Spirit of God because he's overcoming our resistance to this truth and he's enabling us to embrace him. And so in the new covenant, what God is saying is, you all have my spirit. My spirit lives within you. And what he's done in you is to change your heart. And what he's done in you is to take away your resistance so that you no longer suppress this truth. And now your life can be affected by God himself so that you would know him. And what will you know about him? Well, you'll know that he forgives sins because that's who he is you will know that he is merciful and gracious because that's who he is. 
you will know that He's just because that's who He is. And you'll know all of that because you'll see Jesus and see Him clearly. And that's what we have before us. Communion is amazing. It is so because it's just very simple. We have this bread, and we Presbyterians have this grape juice. And we see these items and elements all the time, I suppose. You can buy them in the grocery store. These were bought, I'm sure, in a grocery store. Um, But then there is a sense of its depth. Because somehow, because God has given us this meal and He said, I want you to come and experience this. I want you to come and take this. I want you to come and taste this. That we trust that He'll meet us here in a way that enables us to concentrate our attention on Jesus. And not only that, but in the mystery of the moment, to fellowship with Him. And we remember that this all began on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And He was with His disciples on that last Passover night, first communion night. And He took bread and after giving thanks, He broke it. And He gave it to His disciples and He said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, they're getting the impression they need to do this again, and every time they do this, their thought should be upon Jesus and who he was. And then again, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, this cup is the new covenant. And so you get this sense that they must be thinking, We'll know God. That's what Jeremiah said the new covenant was. We'll know God. They will all know Him from the very least of us to the greatest. It won't be based on social status. It won't be based on anything like that. Everyone, all of us in this covenant will know, will know God. Well, 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 how will we know God? And Jesus said, oh, think about me. Because if you've seen me, you've seen God. Well, what have we seen in Jesus? We've seen the very justice of God because we've seen the cross. And the cross is the very justice of God upon sin. God can't acquit the guilty. He can't receive us to himself just as we are. We must come to him in Christ. And so, so, so he takes all of that justice, this horrible, horrible pain, and puts it upon Jesus. Many of you, I'm sure, saw the movie The Passion of the Christ. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm slow at these things. Uh, But the beatings of Jesus was the smallest part of the punishment that he took. One of the great weaknesses of film is that it can't capture the true pain of Jesus, which was being forsaken by his Father. That moment. It was held there. That was the justice of God. And so you see, by the Holy Spirit, He enables us to see in that cross 
the justice of God. God says, I won't acquit the guilty. But also he enables us to see in the cross, which makes us the called ones, which makes us the ones who are able to see this. We see the mercy and the graciousness of God. But he didn't pour out his justice upon us. He poured it out on Jesus. And so when we look to Jesus, we see God. We see the one who's just, but we see the one who's gracious. We see the one who's merciful. We certainly see the one who's been patient with us. We see the one who's filled with loving kindness and faithfulness because he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And so do you want to see God? Do you want to know him? Then you've got to know Jesus. And if you're going to know Jesus, you need to know more than just the facts about him because Lots of people know the facts of Jesus. Lots of people can take a multiple choice test on Jesus and pass. But do they know him? You can only say that you know him if you've received forgiveness because he's the forgiver of sins. And how can you say, I know Jesus, but my sins aren't forgiven? You couldn't say that. How could you say you know Jesus unless you said, I know he's the Lord? Because he is that. And how could you say, I know Jesus, but, but I don't really have any desire to follow him, to obey him. How could you say that? Since he's the Lord and his ways are best. If you really knew him, you'd know that. And if you knew that, you'd follow him. And how can you know him and be afraid? Because he's the sovereign one over all circumstances. And he says, trust me. Now I know with that one, most of you just said, well then I must not know him. Because I have fears. But you see, even at that moment in time when you say, I have fears, where do you run? Where do you turn? Where do you go? You say, well I have to go to Jesus because he's... You do know him. Because why would you run to him with your fears? Unless you thought he could help you. And, and you think he can, he can help you because you know that he's the Lord that he cares for you. And so these moments of communion are significant to the point that it enables us, helps us to deepen not just our intellectual knowledge of God. See, there's not a whole lot to say about this. This isn't that complicated. It's bread and juice. But there's something in that that God's Spirit does for those who know him to deepen our relationship with him, to deepen that of his life that affects our life as we think upon Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us even now that as we come to this table, as we sing, as we take of this bread and juice, that you would communicate to us fresh and new, deeper who you are. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Take this bread, take this juice, set it apart from its very common look, feel, uses and make it special here as you've promised, that we may feed on our Lord Jesus. And by that, 
that the promise of the new covenant would be ours in this measure now that we might know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me remind you that this is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who come to him in repentance and faith, that is, all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And to come believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the very communication, the very revelation of God to us. He's the very justice of God, the very mercy of God, the very grace of God. And that you receive and depend upon him alone for your salvation. If that's true of you, it means you know him. If you know him, I invite you to his table. These two sections come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and just think in your own mind, through Jesus, I know God. Please come. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would grant to us all of the benefits that accompany salvation, that we would have the full assurance of hope that trusting in Jesus provides all that we need both now and always. And Father, we pray that you would apply the benefits of the work of Christ to those uh, who are hurting in our congregation. We think especially of Jean McClure this morning in the hospital. We pray that you'd continue to uh, enable her to recover from the brain surgery that she's had. And Father, that she would know your very presence with her, uh, even through us as we visit, but even by way of your spirit in her. For Katie Buck, Father, thank you for her life, and we continue to pray that you would sustain and strengthen her. For those missionaries we support, most especially this morning for the Ketros in Italy and the Quidans in Croatia, we pray that they would know the closeness of Christ by his spirit, that they would know that they know the Lord, and that that would be great strength for them and enable them to do all that you call them to in their place. And for us, Father, we pray as we go from this place uh, that you would grant to us this great sense of assurance by way of your Spirit in us, that your Spirit witnessing to us would enable us to know that we are in fact children of God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you there will be elders available to pray after the service in the office area. Please take advantage of Of that, um, our time together on Wednesday evening, uh, don't forget either. The response to the benediction this morning is for us to sing together the doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here be.